Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And welcome to part two in our Diagnosis Education series. This episode is going to give us some insight into particular manifestations of anxiety, where they come from, and some about what we can do about it. The first post reviews hoarding, a very pervasive condition actually, obsessive obsessions, compulsions, and other kinds of perfectionism. The second post challenges the common concept we have of what it means to be an empath and describes the anxiety of savior complexes. The third teaches us about intrusive thoughts. The fourth is about the symptom of over-apologizing, and the last explains how inappropriate reassurance can perpetuate anxiety symptoms. All right, let's get started. This first post is called Hoarding, Obsessions, Compulsions, and Other Perfectionisms. In our earthly existence, we don't feel the need to be perfect unless our current selves don't feel acceptable. Though it is always good to improve ourselves, we must accept that we are valuable and lovable now to feel secure enough to take the risks that improvement requires. If nothing besides perfection is acceptable, then we will be sorely disappointed and ashamed our entire lives. So why do we feel the need to be perfect now? There is no religious doctrine that requires that. So no panic attack over the disarray in your living room or your parenting skills can be attributed to Jesus. This form of anxiety comes from real experiences of imperfections being punished or invalidated. Examine your life. Have you seen any of the following? Maybe there was someone close to you who would blow up in anger at the slightest misstep or blow up for no reason, criticize or make demands first in interactions, or critique more than give praise or appreciation, Someone who needed everything to be spotless or perfectly ordered, or needed to have control over the plans. Someone who'd criticize their own or other imperfections frequently, or be intolerant of certain emotions in themselves or others. Anger, sadness, fear. Someone who would anxiously prepare for worst-case scenarios, or have hoarding or compulsive behaviors. There are several ways exposure to these experiences can contribute to compulsive behaviors and perfectionism. 1. People develop a need to control situations in response to unpredictable, chaotic environments. If you couldn't predict how a parent would react, what would happen during the day, or what the consequences of your actions would be, then you might seek control in whatever form you can. Even blaming yourself for the feelings and actions of others can be a coping mechanism that creates a false sense of predictability. See the post, Why Kids Blame Themselves, in the episode about shame. Number 2. People try to keep things perfect if they don't know anything different, such as they thought mom's house was always immaculate, or they just always got straight A's, or they were punished for anything different. Either way, this isn't sustainable because you can't keep everything perfect, or at least not keep your sanity at the same time. Number three, people transfer meaning into objects to generate artificial validation. If you have felt invalidated by those closest to you, you are likely to seek validation from other sources. One common source is the accumulation of things, which you justify by imbuing them with importance they likely don't have, saying, I might need this later, or so-and-so would love this, or I could do such-and-such project later on. You get the brief satisfaction of injecting purpose and significance into an object if you are generally lacking it in your life. This effect can also happen with ideas, such as moral, political, 
controversial, or conspiracy issues. People focus excessively on certain ideas if they experience a lack of value or purpose generally. And last example, you compulsively engage in various acts that slightly reduce the anxiety you feel, as we see in OCD. Common compulsions are hand-washing, counting for even numbers, quick prayers of repentance, checking the lights, stove, or lock repeatedly, over-checking your hair, clothes, or makeup, or reviewing conversations or writings for errors repeatedly. The, the compulsion might soothe you for a second, but it doesn't soothe the underlying fear of making mistakes or being imperfect, which exists for a reason much older and deeper than the fear of getting someone sick or having a hair out of place. If you treat the deeper source of anxiety, along with behavioral goals, you can eliminate compulsions. The next post is called Empaths and Savior Complexes. On my wife Caprina's first day of graduate school, her program director wrote on the whiteboard, No Bleeding Hearts. A bit ironic, given the room was full of future social workers, but he was right, in a sense. This post is to help us understand how something like empathy can be harmful if incomplete. Let us start with the definitions of our discussion. People might define these words in many ways, but my purpose here is to highlight differences in concepts, regardless of the specific terms we use. So this first term, empathy, which literally means in-feeling, or the ability to understand the nature or depth of what another person is feeling. Two, sympathy, which means with feeling, or similarity in feeling with someone else, often in the form of agreement. Number three, compassion. This is a non-judgmental concern for the well-being of another. It might not include specific action to improve another's well-being, though. Fourth, empathic anxiety. This is when empathy for someone leads to dysfunctional distress, negligence of yourself, and poor boundary setting. Too much of it leads to savior complexes. And the last definition, savior complex, or if you like, hero complex. This is a consistent state of anxiety over the distress or pain of others that leads to helping others at the cost of higher priorities, often leading to burnout. It stems from feeling shame when you're unable to rescue someone, or the attribution of your worth to your capacity to help other people. In healthy relationships, the most desirable of these traits is compassion. Empathy comes with experience, but no two people can have perfect empathy with, for each other because they have unique experiences. Having similar experiences can increase empathy, which can aid in compassion. But if you haven't had similar experiences, having Compassion will still allow you to validate others' experiences. Compassion leads to calm, deliberate decisions in how to interact with others wisely, which may not be giving everyone what they want, but gives the best chances of positive long-term outcomes. Here are a few scenarios of how these concepts play out. 1. In politics, compassion is the force that would keep leaders and groups from judging or personally attacking each other. It would allow them to disagree peacefully, leading to increased chances of compromise. It would reduce tension even in cases of no compromise. For example, a group of protesters may speak out against gun restriction laws in front of the state capitol building. The governor, a big game hunter and owner of a large gun collection, may feel empathy and compassion for the protesters, express it to them, and still sign the restriction bill because he believes it's best for the common good of the state. 
Though the protesters disagree with this decision, they are less likely to feel personally hurt by it than if the governor had called them trigger-happy rednecks. He can both empathize and feel compassion without necessarily sympathizing with the cause. 2. You might have trouble empathizing with your child's burning desire to get a cell phone as a 10-year-old, but your compassion allows you to listen while she explains how all of her friends have one and how uncool she is because of it. You can validate the feelings even if this doesn't make a lot of sense to you. You realize it feels important to her. You express that you care about her feelings and that it sounds like a tough situation for her. Because you listened, you actually decide to compromise on a low-capacity phone to allow for basic communication. Your daughter is upset, but is glad you at least listened due to your compassion, rather than discount her feelings due to your lack of empathy, shutting down the conversation. 3. A psychiatrist is still seething from her recent messy divorce, due mostly to the excessive hours she spends at work. She justifies spending little time with her family by citing the recent spike in mental health needs. People need help, and who is she to deny them? A colleague confides in her that he has recently had conflicts with his spouse for the same reasons. In a surge of empathic anxiety, she asserts that he should start looking into divorce and refers him to her attorney. If your spouse doesn't care about these suffering people as much as you do, it's never going to work out. She understands much of what her colleague is feeling and is empathetic, but she is not compassionate toward everyone involved. Her empathy has led her to make a potentially destructive emotional assertion. If her desire to help others has led to the dissolution of her own family, you know, a reason for many health, mental health issues to begin with, then her, quote, compassion is more of an empathic anxiety. She has a savior complex, wherein she cannot feel peace while people suffer, leading to her pathological need to help people at all costs. So, what does your empathy look like? Does it make you lose sleep? Does it keep you from asserting your own needs? Is it actually hurting those around you? Does it exclude compassion from certain people or groups? If your empathy is hurting you or others, it may actually be just anxiety. Remember, compassion is a force that allows us to care for people without destroying ourselves, which ironically stops us from helping people. Compassion must apply to everyone, even yourself. If it isn't universal, we may be dealing with anxiety. This next post is called Theory on Intrusive Thoughts. Intrusive thoughts are among the most distressing symptoms we see in mental illness. The content of these thoughts occur randomly in most people's minds, but are particularly sticky for some people. They circulate and cause anxiety. Here are some very common examples of intrusive thoughts. Listener discretion advised. I should jump off this ledge. I might rape that little girl. I might kill my baby. What if I ran over that pedestrian? Oh, he didn't respond. What if he's dead? I wonder what sex would be like with that person. Any other case of, I think, worst case scenario, will happen. Thoughts like these get caught in anxious brains. They often lead to damaging rumination. Those who feel intruded upon by these thoughts have virtually no intention of acting them out or don't actually believe them, but the thoughts still evoke strong, incapacitating emotions. Those who suffer from this symptom often struggle with the debate of whether the thought is a manifestation of their character or a result of their anxiety, or their OCD, in some cases. They feel deep shame when considering 
the former, that it's a part of their character, but feel hopeless when considering that it's just coming from their anxiety. The common approach to treating intrusive thoughts has been to distract ourselves from them as much as possible. The less we think about it, the less we will think about it. This technique has been shown to help manage the symptom for many people, but there's something more that can be done. Everybody has disturbing thoughts about sex, death, anger, sin, etc. But I'm suggesting here that what determines the stickiness of those thoughts depends primarily on past experiences or trauma. Thoughts are intrusive because they are triggers of traumatic pain. The bottom-up approach to treating this symptom would involve the processing of stored emotions from past experiences where we felt the pain that the thought evokes. For example, a woman ruminates on the possibility that her husband is dead after he doesn't text back. She has never lost a loved one before and hasn't even been exposed to other traumatic death stories. In this case, the trauma has to do with the implication of her husband dying, which is the loneliness that she would experience. Deeper exploration finds traumatic experiences of loneliness in this woman's past, an experience her brain now anxiously avoids with intrusive thoughts. The thought of an event that would leave her lonely becomes intrusive. Next example. A teenage boy sees an attractive girl at school and has a momentary thought of sexually violating her. This thought flashes through the minds of nearby teenage boys, but they disregard it and carry on with their other teenage thoughts. But this boy instantly feels intense shame and distress from the thought, and tries his best not to think about it. But the harder he tries, the more vivid the thought gets, and the more distressed he feels. The stickiness of this thought is from the shame it induces. If I thought this, maybe I'm capable of doing it. I must be a bad person for having this thought. The boy fears this shame because he has actually felt the deep pain of shame before, and that is what his brain is afraid of. So it generates anxiety when these thoughts arise, trying to get him to avoid shame. The term for the anxiety that arises from excessive fear of moral shame is called scrupulosity, very common um, in various profiles of anxiety and OCD. A father of three young kids makes a mistake at work that sets him back a few hours. The thought, I could get fired for this, flashes through his mind. The thought sticks and keeps the man from effectively finishing his work, which actually increases his chances of getting fired. Though this thought is so distressing because of, this thought is so distressing because of what it implies, though the man has been fired before for anxiety-related reasons, the fear of being a failure has existed since his early years, where he was made to feel deficient and broken for making mistakes. Losing his job means he is a failure, a shameful being. The fear of the pain of shame keeps his brain anxious about this thought when it enters. So, when we're treating intrusive thoughts, beyond just treating the symptom through coping skills, we can actually treat the source. We do this by processing original sources of pain that the brain anxiously tries, tries to avoid when these thoughts flash through. This can be done through bottom-up approaches, such as IFS, EFT, or EMDR, or similar approaches. This next post is called Over-Apologizers. Do you know a person who says sorry about everything? Are you that person? Over-apologizing is often overlooked as a symptom of anxiety because it's seen as considerate. Over-apologizers are excessively kind or respectful. Society doesn't challenge their behavior. However, over-apologizing can be problematic in several ways. The first is that it indicates insecurity and anxiety. 
which are probably affecting this person in other ways, for which they might need help. These people say sorry about every little thing as if they have offended someone, and are seeking to mitigate sadness or anger as quickly as possible. What are they afraid of? Well, sadness or anger, or the fact that they caused sadness or anger. And why would someone be afraid of these things? Well, for several reasons. 1. Sadness and anger are expressions of pain. If I caused you pain, you might physically hurt me, guilt trip me, shame me, or even worse, abandon me. I would only become afraid of these consequences if I had witnessed or experienced them before and not effectively processed the trauma. 2. If I caused you pain, I might feel shame as I blame myself for it. This feeling is inappropriate because people are not responsible for others' feelings. Healthy guilt or grief might be appropriate, but not the feeling of being bad. People develop shame-inducing responsibility for others' feelings when they experience conditional love, manipulation, parentification, or are unable to process feelings about their parents' emotions. Next, if I caused you pain, your opinion of me could diminish. If I have a low self-esteem and few or unstable sources of validation, then your opinion of me means a lot, and losing your good opinion could be devastating. And last component in this segment, if I already feel worthless, like my mere existence is an inconvenience or burden to those around me, then upsetting you confirms that. It's not just that I've upset you, I must apologize for my own existence. The second issue with over-apologizing is that it, it can actually induce insecurity in others. If children witness an adult apologizing for non-offensive things, they may become anxious about the non-offensive things they do and also begin over-apologizing. The third issue is that it can be annoying, which increases the chance of people actually rejecting and distancing themselves from the over-apologizer. Over-apologizing can be aggravating because it falls into the category of invalidation, which is the failure to recognize and validate someone's emotional state. When someone expresses their guilt or sorrow for something they did that did not hurt you or make you feel sad, then they are failing to recognize how you feel, which is not hurt or sad. You feel misunderstood if someone is treating you like you've been offended, which can get old after a while. You might also feel annoyed that this person isn't letting you take responsibility for your own feelings, letting you confront when you actually feel offended. So what can be done about this? If you're an over-apologizer, start noticing the situations where you do it more often. What people or places induce more apologies from you? Think about what you're feeling when you do it and why you feel that way. Is this the present scenario itself making you feel insecure? or our past experiences informing the present. Try tracing the feeling, rather than compulsively apologizing as a way to avoid it. If you are closely acquainted with an over-apologizer, stop accepting their apologies. Saying things like, it's okay, or no worries, may actually enable the behavior, endorsing that you actually felt offended and are accepting the apology as appropriate. Don't tell someone that they don't need to apologize because this invalidates the anxiety that they're feeling. They feel like they need to apologize, and arguing with feelings never helps. You might start by kindly saying, I don't accept the apology, then continuing to be calm and loving with the person. This will allow them to have the anxious feeling without perpetuating the idea that you are offended, or that they are unsafe if they make you upset. Let them know that you love them and will not hurt them even if they did make you upset. 
Then, if you're feeling up to it, have a conversation with them about their habit, helping them build insight into why they do it. They may find it is unresolved trauma, or you may find you are doing something that actually makes them feel threatened, which you may decide to change. You can let them know that you would like autonomy over your own feelings and would like them to treat you according to your feelings, which again might be not offended. Maybe you'll share this post with them. All right, the last post is called Against Reassurance. Telling people it'll be okay often makes it worse, and this happens for several reasons. The first is that you don't actually know if it will be okay. If this person trusts you and your prophecy proves false, then you'll have some ground to make up. If your kid is nervous about the big game and you say, you'll do great, and they miss the game-winning shot, then you lose some of your credibility. It'll be harder to trust you in the future. Be truthful, not speculative, saying something like, I'll be cheering for you no matter what. Second, even if the odds are pretty good that everything will be okay, reassurance doesn't address this person's underlying fear. Maybe they've got the presentation down pat, but they're still having an anxiety attack over the chance of screwing up. They're not afraid of the probabilities. They're afraid despite the probabilities. They're afraid of the worst-case scenario. Even if there's only a 0.01% chance of failure, that failure feels like the apocalypse. So, instead of trying to explain that the chances are small of the apocalypse happening, show them that you'll be there through the worst-case scenario, saying something like, whatever happens, we'll make it through today, and I'll have a gallon of ice cream waiting for you. Third, even if the person buys your prediction and calms down with the reassurance you give them, they will still hold anxiety for the worst-case scenarios, because you took away the scenario, but not the fear of them. They develop no emotional resilience if they always get reassurance. Learning that worst-case scenarios are survivable through actual experience or mental run-throughs is how we decrease our fear of them. As a side note, be especially careful of implementing a quick fix for the person's imagined fear. If they say, I can't go to the pool party while my body looks like this, I'll be humiliated. Don't say, oh, don't worry, I'll work out with you. This is an affirmation that they should be ashamed of their body. Also, don't lie and say there are no imperfections if there are some, because it needs to be okay to have imperfections. Also, don't say, don't worry, no one will even care. That is false. Some of the folks at this pool party probably will be judging and comparing bodies. Again, when they're ready, say the completely honest thing, which is, you are beautiful to me, and I want you there with me. Fourth, reason against reassurance, is that it can be invalidating when somebody says it will be okay and it really feels like it won't be. The loss of a job, a loved one, or a relationship actually feels catastrophic, and you telling me it'll be okay makes it seem like you have no understanding of my experience. It makes me not want to talk to you, which will leave me feeling more isolated. So what are we going for when someone is seeking reassurance? When working from the STEPS model, reassurance goes in the top category, which is teaching and challenging. You are giving your perspective, which is a form of presenting new information or teaching. Remember that this kind of input is best received after the person has processed the emotion and they are already feeling calm and in their logical brain. It is not well received while they are feeling anxious, or it doesn't help them 
in the middle of the strong emotion. Listen to them first. Find out what they're really afraid of and validate that feeling. Then ask what they think and if they want any logical help from you. Remember, no unsolicited fixing. Even if the person is acting calm and says they are asking for reassurance or logic, read the other signs, like their body language, their repetitive questions, their receptivity to your logic, to see which emotional state they're actually in. Sometimes people just need to survive some uncertainty in order to get better, rather than get relief with a reassurance band-aid. Okay, those are all of our posts. Um about specific manifestations of anxiety. Hopefully these have been useful to you, um, and I look forward to making the next episode, which will likely be about uh, different manifestations of depression. Okay, thank you so much.